This podcast is brought to you by Church Society, a fellowship contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. information about Church Society and all the things that we do on our website churchsociety.org. You'll also find there the full archive of the podcast. Welcome back to the Church Society podcast. I'm Lee Gatiss. I'm the director of Church Society and I'm joined today on this special edition of the podcast to talk about General Synod by two members of General Synod who are from the Church Society staff itself. I'm joined firstly by Ros Clark, Dr Ros Clark. Hello. Hello. And by Dr Chris Moore. Hello. Hello. And to give us the ordinary man on the ground's perspective, we have the ordinary man himself, Tony Cannon, our regional director for the South and East. Hello. <laughs> nice to see you all. So uh, we've just had a meeting of the General Synod of the Church of England uh, going over from the end of last week to the beginning of this week. Uh, and we're recording this on uh, Wednesday, the 12th of July to go out later. Um, there was a lot of business. A lot of things happened uh, so why don't we dig in with the, the first and possibly the, the most important thing that's foremost on many people's uh, minds, which is LLF. Uh, tell us, Roz, to, to begin with, what uh, what's going on with LLF? Wasn't this supposed to be the meeting originally where it was all uh, finally voted on? What, what actually transpired? Yeah, so in February, we uh, were presented with the proposals from the House of Bishops which underwent a very lengthy process of debate uh, over eight hours uh, and various amendments and uh, discussions were had. And we were repeatedly told, oh, this will be dealt with in what's called the pastoral guidance that was due to come alongside the revised prayers of love and faith. And after that, they also decided we needed something called pastoral reassurance. Um, So pastoral guidance would be an information for ministers about how and when they might use these prayers and in what kind of context. Mm-hmm. Pastoral reassurance was intended to be something uh, broader than that to help those who were concerned about the introduction of prayers in love and faith feel reassured mm-hmm. uh, that there hadn't been changes of doctrine, that they wouldn't be forced to do anything against their conscience and so on. So various working groups were set up Uh, one for each of those, for the prayers, the guidance, and the reassurance. I think it's fair to say very little work was accomplished Hmm. by two of those groups. There is a revised version of the prayers, so I think that group did make some progress, although the revision is, is not very substantial. And the other two groups felt that they couldn't really get very far because of the way their... Uh, work had been framed so they weren't really allowed to discuss theological issues and therefore there was a sense of of what what can we do so what we had at this synod was a number of questions about this in the question papers you can always ask questions about anything and and people did by and large the kind of answers we got there were pretty vague Uh, and insubstantial yes i uh, had asked a question about the changes uh, in the Church of England's doctrine on marriage and the place of sex within marriage. So then I asked a supplementary in the chamber about 
had there been any change in the Church of England's doctrine on sexual immorality and sex outside marriage. I wasn't really expecting that to be a particularly complicated question. <laughs> there are processes which the Church of England has to go to it, through if it's going to change any doctrine, and it clearly hasn't been through any of those. So I was expecting a pretty straightforward no. And in fact, what we got from Sarah Mullally, the Bishop of London, was she, she looked really taken aback by it. And then we had this sort of vague answer around, well, our understanding might have changed and this and this and this. And you kind of, oh, OK. So things really are in different ways. We then also had uh, a three-hour session, four-hour session on Saturday afternoon that had been set aside as non-synod business. So outside the normal rules of the chamber, we weren't going to be voting on anything. Um, but we would hear from the Bishop of London and others, and others who've been involved in the process so far, and there will be opportunity for questions. I think what we got a sense was they had admitted the timetable for July was very unrealistic, and we were con then mm. being told everything might be done by November. I think there is some debate about whether that is a realistic timeline. So do you either. not think that that's realistic even for November, for them to get this all tied down? Well, I think they are beginning to realise what I think some of us have felt from the start, which is that this is basically an impossible task. Yes. They're trying to please one group of people whilst realising that they don't have the kind of majority in synod they would need to really push through, for example, same-sex blessing in the way that some people would like. And even what they have proposed, uh, sorry, same-sex marriage, even what they have proposed in terms of these blessings, I think they're realising legally they are on a very sticky wicket to try and get that through. And they've been proposing, for example, uh, acting under something called Canon B4.2, yes. which is, I think, a provision by which the Archbishop of Canterbury and York together can simply commend doctrine or liturgy. Liturgy, or like not that. doctrine. They liturgy, can't change doctrine right. on so their own. So it's the kind of thing they might use when they're putting together a coronation liturgy, for example, and yes. whole synod don't have to necessarily vote on that. I think there is, again, a real sense of trying to subvert process around that and, and trying to find some magic form of words or form of liturgy or form of proposals that will just suddenly make all this fit together and perhaps that doesn't exist. Yes. Chris, you want to come in at that point? Yes, I think what was interesting as well in the, the sort of the panel um, group, and you can watch this on YouTube should you want, the Church of England YouTube channel has got actually just the LLF debates separately on it, so you can have a look at this. But there was the beginnings of some talk about differentiation from, say, Bishop Andrew Watson, um, and we've not heard that sort of language before. And I think it's fair to say that those who are seeking changes towards uh, same-sex marriages are feeling quite let down, understandably, by, you know, there's a sense that, well, the decision was taken in, July, in February, what's going on and are we now rowing back? So that is beginning to sort of ill feeling sort of around this sort of thing as well. So mm. there is a sense that you've got a, a synod itself, which is getting itchy feet. Bishops who are trying to keep things going in a more measured way because they can see the task in front of them, the size of it. Uh, it's just getting sort of mired in that kind of, um, well, as I say, that, that kind of slow, sticky way forward. And that is causing some, yes. uh, an understandable deep upset on those who want to see change. 
Yes. So nobody's been kicked out. The only thing that's being kicked is the can further down the road until November at least. And we, we may mm. expect further delays from November as well, possibly. Yes. I think that's, that's probably quite true because, you know, when they were talking about the things that need to be done, there's a lot of them. Yes. Now, Tony, uh, how is this going down in uh, ordinary churches then? And uh, what do you think about all this? Well, I'm just having conversations with uh, PCCs and vicars and wardens and stuff, and it's all uh, fairly depressing. One bishop, interestingly, said to one of the vicars I was talking to about five or six weeks ago that he said um, he doesn't think there's any chance that it'll be that within in November. It's definitely going to be sometime next year at the earliest before these things are addressed, which, of course, begs so many questions. I mean... Uh, for example, in uh, the diocese I'm based in Chichester, there's quite a number of parishes who are withholding either all or part of the parish share in protest because they've run out of ways to protest. Um, and that's with a diocese where all three bishops claim to be orthodox in the matter of sexuality. Yes. And so they're running out of where to go on this. They've, they've passed resolutions, they've written letters, they've They've done everything they can do. Everything's just being trampled over them, they feel, and they're running out of ways, places to go. Um, and I think there's that sense of desperation. And you can understand, as Chris said, why uh, those who are uh, wanting to go in a completely different direction and bring in uh, gay marriage, equal marriage, and all the rest of it, and, and, and change the teaching of the church, they're desperate too. Um, I didn't watch very much of Synod, but the thing I did watch was, first of all, Bishop Rose's extraordinary... Um, Outburst. ...conversation. Um, but, but particularly, the, what followed, which was a man called Stephen Hoffmeyer, and I thought it was very telling how he just said, surely there's a better way. Surely, to goodness, we can get round the table. We have to acknowledge that we're never, ever going to agree on this. We've got completely incompatible views not just on sexuality, let's get around a table and let's find a, a sensible way of uh, separating on this. So if you're pausing your parish share, it may still be paused for quite some time. Of course, that's mm. all creating a lot of uncertainty as well. And uh, we did see at General Synod that lots of people um, were, um, how shall I put it, restraining themselves from offering themselves for ordination. And the number of ordinands is diving downwards mm. uh, and and so that is also creating problems for the church long term having this long pause where nothing's happening i'll come back to ros and then uh, chris again it's just to say we were told that for the first time i think the faith and order commission are going to be involved and Good. actually do some theology so that would wow. be nice um, <laughs> in particular uh, that was mentioned with respect to whether the teaching and doctrine are in fact the same thing or or separate as we were perhaps suggested at one point. So it, it feels quite late in the process, but I yes. think that is a good thing. They're also going to be working on the question of whether holy matrimony is the same as marriage. Um, yes, and right. also the question of blessings. What actually does it mean to, to bless people, things, exactly. relationships? Exactly. So not so much the theology of uh, sexuality itself, but actually some of these things that are surrounding yes. the, the current proposals. Lots of things being done on the hoof and made up as they were going along are going to be properly looked at by the Faith and Order Commission, our Doctrine Commission, essentially. Chris, final word on LLF. Final word on LLF. I think it's also worth uh, just noting that the thing which uh, Bishop Rose was reacting to 
uh, or responding to rather, uh, was this talk of differentiation, because there really is a desire amongst those who are looking for change still to have some sort of unity. And so Saul try and see the churches being held together. And the tension is coming from those on that side of the argument who want to keep the church together, understandably, and what they're doing, but also those who find, you know, who on, we would say, those who wanted to resist the changes, who are very much saying, but we can't remain closely aligned in a grouping uh, and in a church that has got same-sex blessings and so seeking differentiation. So that's a point of real... Um, a point of an issue and there is that sense as well of course the bishops themselves who see themselves as uh, centers of the unity this whole disuniting towards differentiation it, it hits them hard it is quite difficult for them to deal with and that's behind a lot of the kind of comments we're hearing elsewhere on on that and other issues yes i know that uh, bishop rose had some uh, pushback from her terrible speech a um, lamentable thing for bishop a bishop to be saying um, and uh, I hope others will write to her if they were similarly annoyed or disappointed by what she said. Well, why don't we move on to something a little bit uh, a little bit different? So there was also a motion which I think involved another church society member uh, about weddings and the fees for weddings. Chris, what was all that about? I think a lot of it was about, as, as Tom acknowledged at the beginning of his speech, about his own domestic arrangements as a, a man who's a father of five daughters and has a rather <laughs> traditional view as towards the paying for weddings. Um, it was it was to do with really a, a motion, and this is just worth, for people who are listening to this, it's worth bearing this in mind. This is a motion that originated in a PCC in Blackpool, which then went through all the tears that we had with Synod and ended up um, at General Synod. So there is a real strong link that we should be aware of that, you know, it's good, it's healthy. When you say the tiers of Synod, you're talking about T-I-E-R-S, the different layers of Synod's deanery, diocesan and then general. You're not talking not about weeping. weeping. Being, <laughs> but it is both. Ambiguous. Yes, okay. Um, so you, you go through all of that. So uh, basically the, idea, the, the, the problem is this, Blackpool uh, itself uh, and the deanery there, it's a very poor deanery. Blackburn itself is not a very rich diocese. I'm talking about the population as well as the diocese itself, of course. And the 500, and I can't remember the exact figure, around £550 we charge as the minimum for marriage is a real hindrance, is a real hurdle. And yes, we're allowed to waive fees, but that's humiliating to come cap in hand saying, uh, can I please uh, waive fees? And as Tom mentioned, this is shocking. The, on the Church of England website itself, it says if you're thinking of borrowing money to pay for your wedding, why not consider a local credit union? Well, are we really wanting to be in the situation where we're having to have people borrowing money? And if we believe in marriage as a good for society and a good uh, which God has given to us in creation, should we not allow access to that freely? Because it's a good. So the, the, the original, and it was amended slightly, but the original proposal was just to waive or drastically reduce wedding fees. It was then amended um, so that actually, in fact, there'll be a trial of this in a few places first, just to see. Because although everybody thinks that's a cracking idea, we agree that's absolutely right. 
but can we really afford it? It always comes up straight behind. Yes, and that's my interesting question as well, because I, there were also figures released around the time of General Synod about the uh, the deficits faced by many dioceses um, across the country. So this is a big question. Weddings bring in a lot of money for the church. And I mean, it is a service we're providing. Uh, so it isn't necessarily immoral to charge um, a fee for the use of your building, heating, lighting and the vicar and so on. Uh, but yes, it will create problems financially. Roz, you want to come in at this point? Yes, I think we should just say Tom Wolford. I don't think we actually mentioned his name. But yes, uh, so it is uh, Tom Wolford, who is a member of Church Society, uh, used to be on Church Society Council, who is the one who proposed this motion. And I would really encourage you, if you haven't already, to go and listen to his speech, because it was the last piece of business in what had been a really long and grueling synod. And he managed to propose this motion in a way that that really brought Synod together. It made people laugh. He addressed all sort of different groups on Synod. You know, if you're uh, of the mindset that marriage is a sacrament, that's why you should vote for this. If you're evangelical, you should vote for this. If you're, you know, for all sorts of different reasons in different kind of contexts, why this Synod, uh, why this motion is something that all of Synod could get behind. And although you're right, there have been real concerns about the financial implications of it, it's also worth listening to his speech where he points out that the financial implications may not be quite as serious as we might initially think. It's wow. not just a question of there will now be no income that comes from weddings and, and all of this money will be lost. There are ways in which that can be mitigated, for example, by encouraging donations, which could be even more strong, uh, you know, more generous than the fees that uh, we currently expect, but but can be varied according to the situation of the couple or the parish uh, or whatever. So I really would, it was it was one of the moments where you thought Synod is doing what Synod should be doing and mm. doing it well. And so that was a really good way to end. Brilliant. Okay, that was a more positive note in uh, in many ways, and certainly one that will have an effect to uh, uh, in in every parish eventually if that uh, is that trial period is extended and solidified in the future. Another thing that came up at Synod and really hit the press, so there was lots of media interest um, in, in this little debate, uh, was that the Archbishop of York said something about our father and praying to God as our father and uh, this being problematic was the phrase used certainly in the Guardian headline that's what it said but many others picked it up too my first thought was well if people are struggling with the idea of God as our father wait till they hear about Jesus is Lord and what that means um, but it could be that the media, the press, grabbed onto something that wasn't really a big deal or that they misunderstood. So, um, Roz, tell us how that uh, landed for you. And then I'm going to ask Chris about how the Archbishop may have rode back on some of his comments. Yeah, so I admit I was not in the chamber to listen to the Archbishop York as he said this, although I did hear it and have obviously seen the press about that. I don't think it's unreasonable to say that our father is a problematic thing for some people to say. If mm. you are somebody whose father was absent, whose father was abusive, whose father in whatever way um, has been a negative impact in your life, then when you say our father about God, that can be quite a difficult thing to say and to have to keep processing and to understand 
how this is a good thing and what it means that God is our father. And it's not saying that he is like your father who has been difficult. Yes. So I don't think, um, I don't think it's wrong to acknowledge, just as, for example, we would acknowledge on Father's Day, that's not a straightforwardly easy thing for everybody. Mm. But it's not straightforwardly an easy thing for everybody to think of God as their father in a good way. Now, that's not to say they shouldn't. Um, God is our father, and we do need to understand that and how he's better than any human father we have. But I think that's all that the Archbishop of York was trying to communicate, that for some people, it's not an easy nice good connotation interesting thank you of course ephesians chapter three tells us that every fatherhood um is named from god's fatherhood so it's not like we're projecting onto god the fatherhood that we experience from our human fathers that's not who god is he's not a projection of our own personal experience but he defines what fatherhood is and what it should be but chris this um this debate rumbled on a bit during synod what happened later well, at the Minster service then, which was um, on Sunday morning, uh, right at the end of the service, before we all shuffled out to our various lunches, the uh, Archbishop clarified, I suppose, what he meant there. He, he, he said that there had been some mischievous reporting of what he'd said and was uh-huh. keen to point out that really, I suppose, that Ros is uh, channeling the Archbishop of York, as she does often, uh, uh, sort of really... <laughs> But what he was trying to say, that he was keen to say, I'm not saying that we shouldn't say our father, I'm not proposing. And really, I think the problem is it's, it's been reported as him wading into the gender of God debate, which is not what he was trying to do. Um, and so I think genuinely he was just acknowledging that, you know, there are issues, as Roger said, around this phrase and was trying to clarify that, you know, he has been... Um, he feels misreported and I think he's right in that. That's interesting because of course it would be very easy to read him in that context since there is a group now looking at changing um, God's pronouns or uh, this sort of gendered language being used of God in our prayers and so it is a current hot debate. It isn't something that came out of nowhere but there is something being discussed on that. Is that not right, Roz? Well, it is a current hot debate but I think the context, when we say context, I think we do need to look at context within what he was actually saying in that speech i'm i'm not always his greatest champion but i i really do think there was quite a lot of over reading that went on by media and others watching from outside who only listened to a very tiny clip of what he said which could be misinterpreted and taken to be you know well he's really our mother and our father and all this sort of stuff and i i really don't think within the context that is where he was going or what he was intending to talk about. In the current situation in the Church of England, it is increasingly important for churches to be able to clearly identify themselves as faithful to the Bible, faithful to historic Anglican teaching and faithful on the pressing issues of today, including, of course, matters of gender and sexuality. We hope that identifying as a church society partner church will be an easy way for churches to make that public commitment and to know that they are part of a wider fellowship of churches around the country. Partner churches commit to praying for church society and making a financial donation towards our work. They will have access to a dedicated section of the website full of resources 
for churches to use and will be able to call on Church Society staff for advice and support. More information about becoming a partner church is available on our website and by contacting the office. We hope that you will join us in our work of contending to reform and renew the Church of England in biblical faith. Okay, and uh, our next little item on General Synod was something to do with safeguarding. That was a huge item for discussion and has been a huge debate in the press, the media and on Twitter, of course, over the last few weeks. So um, what is going on with the Church of England safeguarding, particularly at the national level? There seems to be an unholy row and an almighty mess. So, um, Chris, can you just key us in on, on some of what's been going on when it comes to safeguarding in the Church of England? I can have a go. Um, I think it's worth pointing out before I go into that, something which everybody was saying, which I think is true, is that, and as you've just said, what's being debated is the, is the centre, the top tier, if you like, of the safeguarding. And people are very keen to point out, and I would agree with this, that actually the... Um, the issues that are, you know, the rather the diocesan safeguarding advisors or officers on the ground are doing a good job. So the criticism here isn't over safeguarding in the Church of England, in the diocese, and in your church as a whole. The issue is is particularly around what is known as the independent safeguarding board and how the church itself nationally has responded to allegations of abuse. Uh, and we know of all that's been going on there. The particular issue here is over what was set up and known as the Independent Safeguarding Board. And the Independent Safeguarding Board were a group of three people uh, who were set up uh, to move the church towards having a fully independent safeguarding system of review and all that sort of thing. And just before, with impeccable timing, Synod, a week, two weeks maybe, um, but I think not that long, before General Synod, two of those members were sacked and people thought well hang on what what's going on here because if this is an independent safeguarding board how come the archbishop's council have just sacked them and they were sacked and then a, a, within an hour of that sacking then the message went out to all of the uh, survivor groups so now there's some saying well did you really consider how this would land with the survivors that you are working with them trust is being built with them we're starting to address this and suddenly you pull the plug on this. How's that going to react? Are people going to feel yet again let down by uh, the Independent Safeguarding Board? So this was then coming up at General Synod. But another problem, the General Synod agenda is packed full of stuff. LLF is certainly something which is um, taking up a lot of time. And so you find that there's scheduling constraints which are seen and understood as trying to shut down the debate on this. Mm. And the Archbishop's Council are giving a presentation, but they, of course, are giving their take on this and not the others. So there then became this rather odd situation when the members of Synod are desperately trying to hear from the two people who've been sacked, who are sat up in the balcony, and they're finding the standing orders aren't allowing that. So in the end, we had to suspend uh, Synod itself so we could hear from these people. But that looks like cover-up. I'm not saying it is. But the optics of this are just dreadful. Yes, they really are. Ros, um, from your perspective, how does it all look? And Yeah, I mean, I think 
one of the things that all of this mess illustrates is that the word safeguarding now is used to, re to refer to so many different things. So with the Independent Safeguarding Board, they were fundamentally given two tasks. And I think probably one of the mistakes quite early on was those tasks should have been separated out. And they kind of were, but something went wrong quite early on that the uh, initial chair of the Safeguarding Board um, there was uh, allegations around a, a data breach and show, so she was suspended and had to step down. But it changed the balance of the group quite significantly. So one of the tasks they were given was around engagement with survivors uh, of historic abuse and supporting of them. But the other task they were given was around setting up, as, as Chris has mentioned, this independent safeguarding board that was going to do things like audit the church now how safe is the church now mm. now both of those are really important things how do we support survivors of historic abuse and how safe is the church now and how well are we doing on that but they are quite different things they require different sorts of expertise and skill sets and with the uh, suspension of the initial chair the two that were left on the team were very bad uh, sort of the balance shifted very much in favour of the survivor engagement angle, which was really important, but it meant that the other work wasn't really happening or was happening very slowly. There are different takes on this. It's very hard for any of us on the outside of, of Archbishop's Council and Safe World to know exactly how this happened. But it ended up with a, a clearly a breakdown in communication and relationships to the extent that the board was not functional. And, you know, there are different takes on who's responsible for that, but it clearly got to a point where it just wasn't progressing. But, so we were discussing all of that at Synod, but we were also discussing a really important motion on the redress scheme um, around safeguarding kind of things, what, you know, what um, financial and other redress should we be offering to uh, survivors of abuse? We also, at a different point, had a safeguarding code of practice uh, we had to do some legislative work because we changed the name the name and also the role of a safeguarding advisor in a diocese to a safeguarding officer. So safeguarding hmm. is a thing that means a lot of different things, has a lot of different really important aspects to it. We were discussing it in, in a number of those ways at different points during Synod, and I think that just illustrated the problem that they'd had with trying to set up this independent safeguarding board without being really clear on the distinct things they were asking it to do and whether there was enough breadth of who could do all of those and which took priority and so on. Yeah. Well, thank you for a rundown on that. Of course, safeguarding is one of those central things that we, we all sort of sometimes say... Um, uh, that's what we need the central bodies to be doing. I mean, this is the, a diocesan and a national um, institution's sort of role, and we need them to be doing this, and we want to uh, help them with that. Um, alongside that, we also have things like the clergy discipline measure, uh, and clergy discipline is another sort of central or diocesan role that should be um, well-functioning and something we can give over to them to do. Um, that hasn't always been the case. And the clergy discipline measure is currently being revised. Um, Chris, as a clergyman, can you tell us uh, your discipline? Um, what What is going to be revised <laughs> yeah, about it? Is How is it Sorry. all going? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, 
I think that what there's an acknowledgement that the clergy discipline measure, the infamous CDM, uh, hasn't has had all sorts of unintended consequences, hasn't worked as it was intended, is a mess, needs to be sorted out. And the measure, which is effectively the act that uh, was brought before us, is an attempt to rethink that scheme. And generally, it's a positive thing because of that. To my way of thinking, there are still one or two issues with it. It seems to rely an awful lot on volunteers, uh, and volunteers with particular uh, legal expertise, I would much rather we actually bit the bullet and paid for a properly funded, swift, quick process. And we've also got the problem where it's a one-size-fits-all process. So all complaints, whether it's about the fact that, you know, I, as your vicar, am, am only are wearing brown shoes under my cassock, uh, all the way through to much more serious things, all go into the same system and all dealt by the same people and so that system can end up with my dismissal, regardless, although I know it won't because it'll be triaged and all the rest of it, but perhaps would it not be better as schools and other places do to have a complaint system that anybody can make, but discipline is something initiated by the staff, the head teacher or, or other things. So there are things that need to be sorted out, but this is now going into what is known as the revision stage. So we, uh, which, so we passed the kind of a draft measure, as it were, but it's then revised, so there's a committee that will look at all these things, look at all the details, and some significant changes can be made there. And then it's brought back to Synod to be properly voted on uh, at the end, and no doubt there'll be amendments brought at Synod. So we're a long way, we're, we're down the line, but there's a long way to go. And one of the things you do realise at Synod is that actually you, these things come back again and again and again, rightly, through the process, so that um, by the time something actually is enacted, hopefully... It's been well chewed over. Yes, and Ros, there's been uh, certain developments from your diocese in Litchfield um, with another Church Society member very much involved. Tell us a little bit about that to do with uh, discipline and clergy complaints. Yeah, so Amanda Robbie, who is a Church Society council member, uh, she has been involved with this. Um, Her husband has uh, sadly been the subject of a a number of clergy discipline measure um, cases and so she's able to speak very powerfully about the way that has impacted not just her husband, but actually her and her whole family um, going through those experiences and how um, changes need to be made to that process so that it is not so traumatic. You know, as Chris says, these things can be used for really minor disagreements that vexatious. anyone in your church might have. Vexatious right. complaints against him, yeah. Vexatious complaints. And actually, at our diocese, we've also been uh, discussing the nature of a querulant complainer, which is kind of one level even further, that people will never be satisfied um, in their complaint. So it was really great to hear her speak on that. She also actually was able on the same day to speak with respect to what seemed like a really minor you know, tedious kind of little bit of uh, tweaking, but it but was such an important um, measure. Again, like the weddings motion, this was one that had come via PCC through Deanery, Darlison Synod to General Synod on church representation. That is who can be on your PCC. Yes. And, um, you know, how, how do you ensure that people on PCC are appropriate to be on PCC? There are issues with whether they can be DBS checked or not. And she was able to make a couple of little tweaks there, which will go forward now to the Houses of Parliament to become UK law. 
I mean, that that is quite an exciting thing. That's wonderful. And those of us who've been subject to egregious and malevolent complaints against us, um, I'm quoting my bishop there, uh, will we'll be pleased to hear that some of this is going forward and will be properly sorted out. We hope, we pray, uh, so that clergy aren't subject to that kind of querulant, vexatious complaint and that it doesn't put their livelihood at risk just because they're wearing the wrong colour shoes um, or something like that. Now, Ros, I know that you actually personally were involved in um, bringing an amendment to a piece of legislation that was before the Synod as well. This is to do with confirmation liturgy. Um, so tell us a little bit about that and why on earth would you object to something like that and try to pass an amendment against it? Yeah, so this isn't legislation, this isn't UK legislation we were just discussing in that motion. Um, it was a diocesan motion from Oxford about climate change. Um, so there were a lot of different things on it. It's one of those motions where we had, you know, eight or nine different clauses asking, for example that policy documents on issues around uh, climate change and environmental things should be checked and updated regularly, um, that dioceses should consider how to make vicarages more eco-friendly, uh, lots of things at that sort of practical level and administrative sort of level. But in amongst that, there was a clause suggesting that uh, a an addition should be made to the commission part of the confirmation liturgy. Now, this is something that is not a liturgical change that requires a whole motion and two-thirds thing. It's a thing that you can encourage, that you can uh, add to or not add to. Uh, they've been doing it in Oxford Diocese for a little while. They've been doing it in Norwich Diocese for a little while already. And it was just encouraging other bishops to do the same. But what it is doing is saying at the end of that confirmation service, we ask candidates to make a number of uh, promises. Will you promise to participate in the breaking of bread, the apostles' teaching, in prayer, in repentance, things that we would expect of all Christians. Yes. But to add to that list, will you promise to be um, stewarding uh, the creation in all its integrity and sustaining and renewing the life of the earth? No, it just seemed to me, well, that might be a good thing, and, and I don't disagree with it as a promise in itself, that that is potentially putting up a barrier to confirmation for some people. It's not in the sort of baptismal vows, it's not in the affirmation of those, but nonetheless, if your bishop says, this is the confirmation liturgy and you'll have to make these promises, I think you would feel like you had to make those promises. And so... I think it potentially narrows the church from our one holy Catholic and apostolic church on an issue that, you know, is not in the creeds. It's not something that is part of our uh, core basis of our Christian faith and puts an extra a sort of requirement in there. And of course, it opens up the potential if you start doing that for everything that's a kind of current issue <laughs> it can end up narrowing things even further what else um, might they ask might be able to imagine yes. what sort of things other bishops and, and 
other clothes you might want to add in at that point. Yes, and without needing synodical approval or 67% majorities or anything like that, they could add all sorts of things in, which becomes a barrier to um, being confirmed and taking communion. You have to Mm. sign up to a certain political agenda in order to be confirmed. And can we really, do we really want to start down that route? Chris, what did you think of all this? Did you vote for Ros's amendment? Or did you agree with uh, Andrew Atherston, another good church society sort of chap, who was actually moving uh, this this motion? Well, even though I sat on the other side of the chamber to Ros and therefore was out of her reach, yes, I did vote uh, in favour of her amendment. And, and really for that reason, because confirmation is, is the gateway to communion, to taking communion. You can't take communion in the church. Well, you know, they wanted to accept to over children with communion. But, you know, you don't take communion in the Church of England without being confirmed. So although we wouldn't want to say that confirmation is a sacrament, it is the gateway to that sacrament. And this is the sacraments are means of grace. And these are Christ's gifts to us. Who are we to add any other any other qualification to them? So I you know, I've got a little bit fed up about that. I mean, there are some denominations, there are some churches who will fence the table, who will say that only those who are members of the individual church receive communion but this is going even more further than that it's saying well only those who have a particular set of beliefs and we may disagree with somebody that um, denies climate change we may not disagree we may disagree but that shouldn't really matter because the lord's table is open to all that the lord calls and it's not up, up to us to decide whom he may or may not call i'm afraid to say that i felt this so deeply that actually i i voted against the entire motion as well because it still contained that clause now i did so i have to say knowing that it would pass so okay so maybe it was just a protest that some sense and it probably was but nonetheless you know it's the lord's table it's not ours ros how did your amendment do yeah thank you just a point of clarification by the way andrew atherson wasn't moving the motion ah Uh, that was being moved by bishop olivia Bishop of, I want to say maybe Bishop of Reading. Reading, yes, uh, I think. But Andrew is a member of the Oxford Diocese and had been part of this and involved as part of the Liturgical Commission as well. So he did speak against my amendment. Gotcha. It did a lot better than I thought it might, frankly. In general, uh, when, when an emotion is, bleh, when an amendment is proposed, the person who does the original motion gets to say whether they welcome it or resist it. And in general, if they welcome it, then it goes through pretty uh, almost unanimously. In general, if they resist it, it goes through, it doesn't get through. Mine didn't get through, but it was pretty close. It was about 60-40, which is a lot better than I thought it might do. And you had some Liberal people make an interesting comment to you after that debate. Yeah, a number of people came up to me afterwards, people who I disagree with on a whole range of things. He said, um, you made us think. And it was a good debate. It was a great debate. I think it was really helpful to hear how this has gone down when it's already been used in some of the dioceses that have already adopted it, um, why this is a different order to other things that were wrapped up in the same motion, how we feel about what sort of church we want to be. So I, I was glad that we did it. So basically we could change the church society uh, strap line to church society making liberals think since 1830 or something like that. Uh, yeah, wouldn't that be great? That would be wonderful. So you I made think them think. quite a lot about this in many, many <laughs>
Now more than ever, Christians in the Church of England need to be contending for the true faith against false teaching in the Church. That's why we've republished our book Fight Valiantly in a new, revised and expanded edition to enable all Christians to understand how they can play their part in contending for gospel faith. In this book, Lee Gatiss examines the biblical material on this neglected subject and also helps us to consider some of the applications in the Church of England today, especially in the light of the ongoing living and love and faith process. There are many stories of people contending for the faith in different ways, including within the living and love and faith process. There's also a Bible study guide suitable for use by individuals or groups that would be ideal to work together with your PCC or church leadership team. Fight Valiantly, the new revised and expanded edition is now available from Church Society. Well, at the risk of making this uh, a monstrously long episode of the podcast about a monstrously uh, difficult general synod, um, we'll have a little bit of uh, time now at the end just to think about um, not specific issues um, so much as how things are going on synod. So um, how are people working together, evangelicals, Anglo-Catholics? Um, are they working together? Um, and, and what is the general um, feel of things? So first, Chris, tell us a bit about how you think it's going in terms of co-belligerence between evangelicals like us in church society and other groups within the Synod. Yeah, you realise when you go on to Synod that there's all sorts of groupings around that float around. There seems to be a proliferation of them. Some are very small, some are very big. And there are groupings of of evangelicals on on general synod uh those who are conservative evangelical those who are more widely in the broad stream of evangelical by conservative evangelical i'm meaning on the issue of the ordination of women um and you have a, a wider grouping you have anglo-catholic groupings and so on and so forth i think that because at this there was such a large turnover 60 percent of the synod were re-elected uh, weren't re-elected, rather, for General Synod. 60% of members of General Synod were this time out anew. And let's be honest, most of us have been elected because of LLF, uh, because we would take one stance or the other. And so we have a very politicised um, Synod this time. But also it means that they've got a Synod who are wanting to work together in, within their various groupings. So the evangelical grouping is strong. But what is interesting is we're starting to see some working between different groupings. Ah. So uh, I was at a prayer meeting on Tuesday morning, for instance, where the Anglo-Catholic groups uh, were invited to come and join us as we prayed through various issues. And that's not something that we do. That's not something that's been within the history of um, the evangelical groupings on General Synod. But there is a sense that, say, with the five guiding principles being an obvious example, there are things actually that we do agree on. We may get to the answer by different routes, but we get to the same answer. And so to pray and support each other, and that is good and it's important. Uh, and Ros mentions um, that whole confirmation liturgy business. Well, for the Anglo-Catholic grouping, that's a real big issue in the same way that it is for us. So we can work together on those sorts of issues as well. So I think it's been quite good actually to see that 
some of our natural divisions, which are historic. Yes. We're aware of church society's view over Anglo-Catholic liturgies in the 19th century and yes. all our forebears and all of that. It is in our history, but we're starting to find that as we get new divides growing up within the Church of England, we find ourselves actually on the same side. Ros, how are those things going from your perspective? What does it look like um, in terms of co-belligerence to you on the ground? Well, so one of the things that was uh, quite striking this synod was the anti-five-guiding principles rhetoric. We heard this in the chamber from Bishop Rose Hudson-Wilkin, but we also knew in advance that Watch Women in the Church, it's a sort of a lobby group, uh, angling for uh, not just women's ordination now, but but actually to get rid of really complementary evangelicals, traditional Catholics who oppose the ordination of women. They uh, planned a service for the Monday evening during Synod, a service of lament uh, for all of those uh, women who had felt their gifts had been restricted and restrained through church uh, over the years and also uh, planned um, a presence outside Synod on the Tuesday morning. Uh, that's why what sort of occasioned this joint prayer meeting between the complementarian evangelicals and the traditional Catholics say, well, actually, we both of us are, are sort of the target of Watch's activities. Let's come together and, and pray about this while that, uh, I think protest is probably too strong a word for what happened, but while that was going on, let's pray for that together. And I think that that was a really encouraging thing to do. It also, I think for me, this synod, uh, perhaps even more than in February, felt as though there was clear co-belligerence on the issues of living in love and faith. So prior to synod, people may have seen the letter that had come out signed by various evangelical groups, by the chairman of the prayer book society, by the chairman of the society, of Catholic, uh, it's not the Society of Catholic Priests, but it's the one that's actually, anyway, whatever it was, that chairman, um, and actually, you know, starting to stick their heads above the parapet on that issue as well. I had a really good conversation with one of the um, members of General Synod from my diocese, who's in the society, um, and, you know, that he is very clearly with us uh, on that issue in LLF. I had a very long conversation with Adam Blaunt, who is the chairman of, of that society. And he said what had been really fascinating to see the Catholic priests at the point which they had really realized this was something that mattered was when they saw the proposed prayers of love and faith and realized it wasn't just going to be about praying for a couple, you know, a sort of brief prayer at the end of a service or something like that, where you could pray for anyone and indeed, you can ask for God to bless anyone. But they looked at what was proposed and realized effectively it was using a nuptial mass. <laughs> and if you are a Catholic priest, you do not mess with a nuptial mass. And, and so suddenly they realized that what is being proposed is absolutely unacceptable. So I think... Just hang on, before you move on, just tell us, what is a nuptial mass? For those who are listening to this, who are evangelicals and won't have anything in their heads to do with nuptial mass, can you fill in that um, that phrase with some content for us? Chris nuptial might be able means, to do that. <laughs> nuptial means wedding, mass means communion. So basically it will be a wedding service with, with communion as part of it. 
I think I'm right in saying, I need to look at my rubrics, that at the end of the Book of Common Prayer, it speaks about, and if communion is to follow, then yes. the couple go on. So it, it's really, it's just a longer uh, form of communion. Gotcha. That's right, of a wedding with communion at the end. Why well, call yeah, it a wedding with communion when you can call it a nuptial mass? Okay. Well, and it's well, very it significant for them because they would regard that as a sacrament. We would generally only recognise baptism and the Lord's Supper as sacraments, but for them they would certainly regard marriage as a sacrament and therefore this is taking something that is sacramental as given to us by God yes. and, and using it in an entirely different way. So I think we saw an increase uh, in good relationships with them, ongoing work across the, the broad evangelical spectrum um, that has been really encouraging, and around a range of issues, um, not simply uh, the living and love and faith issues. Chris? I think there's another group on General Synod that we've not mentioned yet, mm. which is the Save the Parish yes. group. Yeah. And that's another interesting area where we, we can work with them. Now, I seem to remember somewhere, and again, Lee will know this off the top of his head on our statement of faith, that it talks about working to make sure the local parish is the, the place where authority and mission is held. I seem to think it's something like that. And it was something about you know, bishops and so forth. Well, the Save the Parish is all about trying to restore the focus of the Church of England to the local parish, and the local parish being the place that is well-funded and the local parish being the place where mission is done. And it seems to me that this falls in very nicely with a lot of the ways that we would think as well, that we would see the local church as being very much the core of what goes on. So there is that other grouping as well, um, and that other grouping is an area where at time to time we find ourselves on, on common ground. Yes. Now, just finally, then, as we as we draw things to a close, it seems to me there are massive issues with our current state of governance in the Church of England. The bishops having forced through some things um, and attempting to force through things um, on spurious grounds um, with LLF, for example, using Canon B4 or B5 and so on, um, without arguing biblically and theologically, historically, practically about it and without really thinking about the implications against a huge number of people in Synod, the ways in which safeguarding has been handled um, uh, in the public realm. It's clear that things are not going well there uh, and bishops are not seeming to pay attention to power that they have uh, and are wanting to trample over a, a whole bunch of people, seemingly. It does seem to me that we are faced with massive issues of trust within the church, credibility, for our leadership who say and do things which make us embarrassed, ashamed uh, to be associated with the Church of England at the moment. But also there is a huge amount of anger around on all sides of these debates. We saw that in Rose Hudson Wilkins' uh, intervention, but also uh, other people expressing deep hurt, resentment, bitterness and anger. Can you, can you speak into some of that from those who were there on the ground in, uh, you know, in the lobbyways, in the coffee times as well? Ros? Yes. I think if there was one thing that would sum up the last five days of Synod for me, it would be trust deficit. That wow. sense that those of us in the Synod, let alone those beyond the Synod, but even for those of us in the Synod, 
around a whole range of issues and in a whole number of different ways, we we saw again and again the lack of trust that people feel. So, you know, it begins, for example, when we have uh, the question session as Synod members, we're all entitled to send in two written questions before General Synod to be answered. And people are just thinking, you've not answered the question. You've avoided the question. You can then stand up and ask a supplementary question in the chamber. I mean, we don't get to the end of the list, but, you know, if you're near enough the beginning of the list, you can. And then a whole host of those are just non-answers. And so we're already beginning, really from the first day, that sense of we're not being told what's going on. And of course, this is happening within the light of, of the news that's come out about the safeguarding board previously. We don't know what's gone on on Archbishop's Council, who made those decisions. We're hearing one story from the board members, another story from Council. Mm. Who do we trust? We go on to LLF. Well, you told us this in January, February. This isn't happening now. You said you thought this meant this. You said you thought you'd done this research here. You clearly haven't. Mm. Why should we trust you? We did have on Sunday evening uh, a debate about uh, the governance review. So this is a piece of work that's been ongoing for, for many years and really overdue for many years. Is this uh, Bishop and Andrew I, Watson leading this? Yeah. He is leading on that at this moment, yes, and presented that. But even then, it was really striking. You know, the amendments that were made to that, a couple were quite minor changes, but the, the amendment that I certainly voted in favour of was that actually, before this gets to the point of being written into a sort of legislative document that we then vote for or against, we should as Synod actually have a chance to debate the different recommendations <laughs> that were made within it, of course. rather than effectively being presented with a fait accompli that all we can do is really make minor tweaks towards. Mm. And we were being told, we need to vote this through, we need to vote this through, we can't have this amendment, it will slow everything down, nothing will happen. And again and again, I think as Synod members, we're feeling as though people think we get in the way. Bishops treat us as if we're getting in the way of them doing what they want to do. Um, church institutions, the national church institutions, with Synod is getting in the way of what they want to do. But that is Synod's job. Yes, We're there to scrutinise these things. We're there not just to represent people out in the parishes and the diocese, but actually to do our job in Synod. And if we're not allowed to do that, then you've got to ask why. Mm. What are they trying to get through without us looking at it? Yes, that just makes you suspicious and on edge and worried and anxious about what might be coming next that you haven't noticed. Um, what are they trying to slip in without us seeing? Yeah. Chris? I think that there... I think there have been quite a few things uh, which was has picked up, which are true, but it would be really good to, if people wanted to, to just listen to the first few um, minutes of the speech of the person proposing that governance thing that you were talking about. Yes. Because the person, I've forgotten the name, unfortunately, who was presenting it, spoke about his shock, really, when he was going through all of this, of what is going on, the lack of trust, the lack of transparency at places. Just listen to those first few minutes, you get an idea of, of what is going on. But I think there's a number of fractures that we're seeing. One is, as Ros has already said, that those who are in power, bishops, central institutions, between the general member, the members of General Synod themselves, 
I think there's also a breakdown, which we see in lots of points of orders that come up because people are cross. That mm. makes things very fractious in the chamber. There's a breakdown between uh, the orthodox and liberal wings of, or rather the conservative and the liberal wings of the uh, of synod. There's also the Save the Parish against the efforts to centralise and streamline. The Anglo-Catholics are feeling left out. Everybody, for at least one reason, seems to be unhappy. Yeah, thank you. Ros, yes. finally. I think the person uh, whose name you can remember was Sir David Livington, oh, who is not a lightweight on these issues. No. Um, so, yeah, no. do you go and listen to him. The really shocking moment, well, there were many shocking moments in, in a number of ways at Synod, but the one where corporately everybody in the chamber gave a huge intake of breath was when one of our uh, participants via Zoom implied uh, that perhaps the Archbishop of Canterbury had lied to the chamber. Now, I don't actually think he had. It was around what had happened in the process with the safeguarding board and the Archbishop's Council. Mm. And I think if you pay attention closely to what Justin Welby said and what had later been said, they're not actually incompatible. But nonetheless, that, I think, indicated the level of distrust that people were feeling that someone could make that sort of accusation was quite a shocking moment. So it's a very febrile atmosphere, a trust deficit, says Ros Clark, um, and real credibility crisis for our whole governance system right now. When is the Synod meeting next? You don't normally have three meetings a year, only two normally, but you are going to have a third meeting. When is that going to be? November. It's in November. November. I can't remember the precise dates in November. Uh, and back in London again at, at Westminster. The yeah. We're assuming um, that it, it's simply to, well, that it was put there so that we could look at the prayers and love and faith and what's coming out there. There no doubt will be one or two other things coming up there as well. I'd be staggered if there's not something on safeguarding uh, coming up, given all that's happened. Because the chair, by the way, the independent stand, the, the new chair, she resigned uh, recent today, I think. And she's made various uh, statements as well, breaking news in church. Hasn't the Archbishop so, of Canterbury's PR person resigned as well? Or something like that. So there's all sorts of things to pray for. Worth Absolutely. The uh, November Synod is not an entirely unprecedented thing. Every year we are given dates for a November Synod in case it is required. So it can be required just because there's a lot of stuff going on, not necessarily because there is a specific emergency issue to deal with i think we know why it's there this year yeah Yeah, but it's not like wow this is absolutely out of but that gives us something to pray for and to think about for the rest of the year. Um, so Church Society members and anyone else listening into this podcast today, please do continue to pray for the whole Church of England, for many of those within the Church of England, uh, like us in Church Society, who are trying to reform and renew the church in biblical faith, who are trying to use the, you know, the committees and the synods um, of the church for good purposes to keep her sound in the faith. Um, and uh, working for the evangelization of our nation uh, and pray for them uh, in their difficult work. I know it has been an exhausting time for Chris, for Roz and for all the other Church Society members uh, on the Synod, about 10% of the Synod uh, also. Um, do thank God for them, pray for their work 
and let's uh, keep them uh, in mind as November comes around as well. Thanks very much for joining us today on Church Society Podcast. It's been great to have uh, Dr. Ros Clark, our Associate Director and Member of General Synod for Litchfield Diocese, and uh, Dr. Chris Moore, our Regional Director in the South and West, who's a Member of Synod for Hereford Diocese. Do join us again on the Church Society Podcast next time. We promise we won't be quite so long, probably, next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Church Society podcast. You can find the whole podcast archive on our website, churchsociety.org. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app. And we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well. Mm-hmm.